it's only when you hit my age now where you start to realise that this stuff, even other walks of my life, that it's all hitting home now. You know, all that stuff from the past and all the, the issues I've got in my head and, and the things that I keep persistently keep falling in the same trap still now. There's so many people, my friends, who've gone down the swanee because of how life started out, really. I suppose this is interesting because they were willing to educate me, but the minute that happened, it was like... I think they assumed that I would know what to do or that my parents would help me figure out what to do at that point. If you come out of no qualifications, no nothing, then there's only one place for you, isn't there, really, afterwards? Unless you're special or you get lucky. I'm Curtis James and you're listening to Class Divide, a podcast about education inequality, its impacts on our poorest communities and what can be done to make the education system fairer. So how did someone like me end up speaking to you now, able to make this podcast? In some ways, it seems like a mystery to me. It feels like I got lucky. In this episode, we're looking at the lasting impact education has on the rest of our lives. We'll hear from people who have discovered learning in their own way later in life, and about a person who has managed to find work in a place that many from our backgrounds rarely get to inhabit, but really should. And we're back with Carly and her brothers to find out what life had in store for them after their very different school experiences. I'm also going to try and explain how I've ended up doing the stuff I'm doing in life, given my less than perfect start. Episode 5, Class Ceilings and Bounded Paths. Like me, Carly and her brothers grew up in Whitehawk. Like me, Carly's brothers went to Stanley Deason, the local secondary school that became known as the school that died of poverty. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, we cover the story of our old failing school there. In the series, we've been following Carly and her brother's education journey from early years to secondary. In this episode, we're finding out what happened after they left two very different schools. My name's Ryan McBride. I grew up in the Wild Estate. I went to Wild Junior School. Obviously then progressed to Stanley Deason. Now I'm a Tyler. Ryan is one of Carly's younger brothers. It's the first conversation I've ever probably really had about school about what used to happen years ago. It's actually quite harsh, isn't it? Like, when you think about how many kids have sort of suffered, some of us end up doing stuff, but some actually affects them for the rest of their lives. Everyone was trapped. Everyone had nowhere to go. No one had no, nothing else to do other than drink a can of beer or smoke a joint. The only reason I got lucky is because I walked into an apprenticeship where they stuck college in London for three years and, and I got out of it, you know, and I managed to have a job that pays well and I do well out of it. But for a lot of people who didn't get that opportunity... You can imagine they left school and that is it. There's nothing else happening because the education wasn't there for them. It is heartbreaking when you see it now. I'm not now, I only live up the road. But it's sad to see the way a lot of people live. I could probably say to you now, there's got to be 25, 30 friends of mine who we went to school with who are in prison, on bad drug habits, no job, no life. No, committed serious crimes. And then once you go down that path for a certain amount of time, it's very hard to change it. I was down at McDonald's the other week and I reckon there were seven of them in the rehab centre, all from Stanley Deason. 
all from my year or year lower or year higher. Obviously, time's a healer, but it don't go forever. It cannot be just with no people getting unlucky. There's, there's something there triggering it all. The word luck has come up a lot in the interviews I've done for this series. The definition of the word is success or failure apparently brought by chance rather than through one's own actions. And when you think about luck, images of lottery winners might spring to mind rather than the family you're born into and the postcode you are able to live in. No one likes to admit that the success they have in life might be down to luck. It's where the fallacies I talked about in episode 1 fall down, that the working class or poor people are too stupid to do well, or that people from my background just need to work harder to succeed. Working harder is never going to make up for multiple generational disadvantages. That's where luck really needs to come in. And as Mary Bowsted from the National Education Union said in episode 1, It is only going to be the most exceptional poor children who are either exceptionally lucky or exceptionally able who escape the conditions of their poverty. Now, we don't expect middle-class children to be exceptionally able or exceptionally lucky, but that's what we require of our poorest children. Is it bad luck to have been routinely locked in isolation rooms or to be constantly taught by supply teachers and fobbed off with comedy films when we should have been learning? Is it bad luck to have been born into a family with its own generational baggage that created a complicated home life? Is it bad luck that we were children at the end of a long line of failed policy, lack of funding, professional mistakes and stigma towards council estates that results in our school letting us down so catastrophically? I'll let you decide on whether you think luck is involved in any of this. In my opinion, it feels like complete and utter system and policy failure. But one thing I do know for certain, the reality of all of this has caused deep wounds in many people who have lived through it. Remember the statistics behind these stories. Young people are twice as likely to succeed in their basic GCSEs across the rest of the city of Brighton and Hove compared with our kids in Whitehawk, Manor Farm and Bristol Estate in the east of the city. Children in East Brighton are also twice as likely to be excluded from school, and Whitehawk is in the top 10% of deprived neighbourhoods across the UK. These statistics only paint a bit of the picture, so I asked Carly's brother Asa to fill in the gaps, to tell us about the impact his school experience had on him later in life after leaving school with no qualifications. It has limited everything, really. Limited everything I can and couldn't do. So I'm doing what I'm doing, but I had a a big struggle before I got to where I am now. But, yeah, there's not many other jobs or many other things I could have done because I I didn't get no education. Have you got any examples of things you don't mind sharing with me that have happened because of like that lack of support in your education? Low self-esteem and I basically thought I was on my own really. I didn't have no confidence, no, no drive, no ambition. It all just went out the window. Like, I didn't have no one pushing me, no one helping, no one like from day one. I didn't have none of that. I went in a hole for a long time and I was sort of started taking loads of drugs and just went right deep into a hole and it was it was really hard to get out but it just suppressed me it just made me 
feel numb, <laughs> and that's and that's the only thing I knew that I thought was normal, but now I realise it's not. I asked Asa if he'd had any positive learning experiences after school. Only learning about myself when I was in rehab, I felt I just felt like I'd achieved something. Like when I went through the rehab, I just learned so much about myself and about what life is really all about. Instead of being it's like just depressed in that hole, like I felt there was other things, and there was a light at the end of the tunnel, and I could do something and make something of my life still. Earlier in our conversation, Asa had said something that was ringing in my ears about how he felt when he was at school. And maybe we did think we were lesser people. I asked him if he still saw himself as a lesser person. No, not now I don't, but I used to, I did for all my, all my, all my life I did. Uh, now I don't. Um, only since I've done a lot of, lot of learning about myself, I, I never believed I could get to them heights. I never believed I could do what I was doing today, really. And I've come so far. But yeah, I never believed I'd get here. It was so hard. It is heartbreaking, you know, when you think about it. Like, like the reason I'm involved in this campaign is because I, I just think, well, why should anyone have to go through that? Mm. I, I used to think that looking after myself or caring about me was selfish, and I truly believed that. And those people used to say to me, "When are you going to start?" Like, Fuck off! Like that, that side made me feel really bad inside. Like it was selfish to look after yourself. It's bad, and I look back and I think, "Well, hell." Yeah, that's what I used to believe. <laughs> Knowing what you know now, what would you say to those teachers regarding what you actually needed then? I'd say, like, in the future to speak to kids about things other than what was going on there and then, and speak to them about what was going on for them, and just listen to what they've got to say. To, and then that could help them more with their education. Once you spoke to them about that, make them feel better to get stuff off their chest as well, you know? Sometimes in life you need you need that push, don't you? You need someone to just like give you that pat on the back, and like that gets you up a bit. And that's what I've got a lot of in me. And I weren't used to that, and, and it and it picks you up, doesn't it? And the same if the teachers done that, maybe it'd been different. Asa has every right to be angry and bitter, but he's not in this moment. He's kind, constructive, and offers some powerful but simple advice that could support others struggling with the same kinds of things he was dealing with as a child. The chances of progressing onto higher education for children from places like Whitehawk are low. According to government data from 2022, in England only 28.1% of children who have been on free school meals end up going on to higher education aged 19, compared to 44.4% of non-free school meal students. Only 14% of white male British students on free school meals end up in further education. So what about Carly, the girl from Whitehawk who got lucky with an assisted place at a local private school? She was listened to, pushed, supported and made to feel like she could do anything, just like the other girls. Surely her chances of going on to further education were high. Everybody at my school was going to university because that was just what everybody did. I'd never known anyone that went to university before. But I applied and I got offered some places and then I missed my grades. I think I'm the only person, maybe the only person at Brighton Hove High School, you might want to correct this, that's ever missed their grades <laughs> to get into a university. The thing is, 
Carly had a different background to most of the other girls, and that really was one of the issues the Assisted Places scheme failed to address. No matter how much support the school gave its students, it couldn't change the generational challenges in students' families. I suppose this is interesting because they were willing to educate me, but the minute that happened, it was like... I think they assumed that I would know what to do, or that my parents would help me figure out what to do at that point. I think they assumed that I knew that there was a thing called clearing. Clearing is a second chance for students to get a place at a different university, even if they didn't get the required grades for their first choice. Because I had decent A-level grades, I just had missed the grades to get to the place that I'd accepted. I'd left home at 16. (laughs) No one in my family had been to university. I didn't know anyone that had gone to university. And if you don't, chances are you won't have someone to help you apply, prepare for the interview or write a personal statement, which used to play a major factor when shortlisting potential students. UCAS ditched them because they favoured more affluent applicants who they found often got their parents to write them. Of course, for students today, there is the additional pressure of tuition fees and all the extra costs associated with going to university. Without financial parental support, there's even evidence of homelessness amongst poorer students who manage to get into university. With the university apparently not an option, Carly followed in the footsteps of her family. So I got a job, an admin job, at Granada in an office, running a thing called Telebank, which was basically tellies for poor people. So I'd been privately educated and ended up earning like seven grand a year in this job because I didn't know clearing existed. I felt quite embarrassed. I was on my own. I didn't really know what to do. By the age of 16, Carly was living with her grandparents and was feeling isolated from her friends and family in Whitehawk. Her friends from school were going to university or heading off on their gap years. Carly felt cast adrift. I met somebody who I'm still married to and I got pregnant when I was 19 and had my first baby at 20, had my second baby at 22, got married in between and then... When my second baby was five months old, it was like, you've got kids to look after now. They're your responsibility. I'd worked in a couple of offices. I'd cleaned. I'd worked in cafes. I'd worked in call centres. And I kind of was a bit like, you can't do this forever. Like, you have to have something solid. So although my husband worked, I very much felt that I had to have something to offer my children and something kind of solid for them. Although I needn't have done this, not that I knew that at the time, I went back and did an open university course, DD100, Introduction to Social Sciences. So when Otto was five months old for that year, I spent doing an open university course. And then at the end of that open university course, I thought, actually, I'm going to go back to university full time. But at that point, I had to wait a year and a half. So when Archie was five and Otto was three, I started full time at the University of Brighton. So I did criminology and social policy at Brighton. And in so many ways, that was a really positive experience for me. I started out teaching social policy, and it must have been then in the early 90s that I first met Carly. That's Emeritus Professor Peter Squires. What stands out is a particular seminar in a cold room in what was then called B Block and a class of people sort of looking at their shoes 
And the one person who you got to really engage with and had plenty to say was Carly. And often as you are with a group of first years, you're, you're struggling to get them to say anything. And I think she got it. And I thought, wow, this is someone who's a bit lively, a bit feisty, got things to say and doesn't mind expressing an opinion. And you absolutely need someone like that in a seminar. And I think Carly was driven and keen to learn and keen to participate and keen to push back. Peter noticed Carly's potential and encouraged her to apply for a PhD. You try to pass on opportunities. I mean, someone did that for me in the dim and distant past. I was the first one from my family to go to university. You know, my sense was that if you could find people to sort of carry that can, then that was part of your job. She was pushing against the margins of what you would normally expect someone to do. She was being original, she was being critical, and she was achieving really good grades. And that's kind of why I thought I was there. You're helping people to achieve the best that they can for themselves. The lesson that I learned from that story is it's really important that people who have privilege and power open doors for people. Because if I hadn't have had that meeting with him, if he hadn't have seen that opportunity, thought of me, called me in, spoken to me about it, encouraged me to apply, I would never have applied for that, not in a million years. Because I didn't know what it was. We all start out the same, but we don't end up the same. Despite all of the challenges, Carly Goldsmith is now Dr Carly Goldsmith and went on to be a senior lecturer in criminology. Imagine what her brothers could have done if these opportunities had opened up for them. Not that they haven't succeeded in what they have done, but the choice, the privilege to be able to do other things just wasn't there. Privilege looks after privilege. In some ways, Peter Squires was doing some reverse snobbery. He was looking at his classroom, and rather than having a feeling of stigma towards a working-class person, he connected with them and supported them. This is great, but when you look at the stats for how many working-class people end up in positions where they're able to lower the ladder, it means it's a rare occurrence when it happens. Here's a stat from the creative industries. Only 8% of actors come from a working-class background. It was 18% in the 1970s. Fortunately, there are some groups like the Working Class Creative Database and Arts Emergency trying to create conditions that make up for the lack of the network, the old boys club in the creative industries, but it's not enough to change the huge gaps. Given that only 7% of the UK's population are privately educated, those statistics are damning, but it's even worse in places like politics. According to the Sutton Trust, in 2019, 32% of our MPs went to private school and around 29% attended a Russell Group university, compared to just 11% of the general population. Like Dr Carly Goldsmith, Courtney Stevenson grew up in a working-class family and faced some similar challenges. She's now working at a research institute that informs public policy. Think tanks and research institutes play a vital role in shaping policy, so what happens if they're not representative of people from all kinds of backgrounds? You've got the civil service, you've got local government, you've got think tanks, you've got like charities and, and different organisations like that. And I think 
generally most of them are pretty bad at reflecting the society that they write policy for. How can you possibly write policy that truly is grounded in an understanding of what it is like to live life as a person on benefits or someone who is struggling to pay the bills or a single mother, like different things like this, because you don't have that lived experience in the room. You can't hope to with the best will in the world and even with the best educated minds in the room, you can't possibly hope to reflect the realities of society and country. So how did Courtney break through the class ceiling? Her mum had similar feelings to Carly's mum when it came to choosing a secondary school. Her local school was in special measures, so her mum managed to get Courtney into a different school, fitting longer journeys around her shop job. She had to change shifts and things in the shop she was working in to make that work, but essentially like made a lot of sacrifices so that I could go to a school with a good subsidised orchestra and lots of extracurriculars and teachers that would push me. And I think if I'd gone to my catchment school, I probably wouldn't have this job, to be honest. I think things would have been different. A bit like Carly, there were deeply rooted structural barriers that Courtney had to overcome when thinking about university. I didn't go to Oxbridge, but I applied and there just wasn't the structures there to support you to do that that you know exist in other schools when they're being coached. I was applying to do politics at Cambridge and there wasn't someone who taught politics at school. So who was going to be able to do a mock interview with me and things like that? As someone who has always been told from being a child, you know, you're really clever, like push yourself. There wasn't necessarily the structures around me to help me do that. It was individual teachers who, when I was at smaller schools, could take the time and do that. But the kind of more structural things were definitely in the way. I work in a think tank now. I didn't know what a think tank was until six months into my master's degree. And that was just because I was just searching for jobs that had the word policy in. I still didn't even really understand how massive policy is and how it kind of underpins everything. And that's someone who did a law degree at a Russell Group University and is doing a master's in policy at a Russell Group University. And I still didn't have that understanding because I just wasn't having those sorts of conversations at home. Courtney told me that she'd never really thought about her class identity until she worked in the policy sector. I'd realised at uni that some people were more posher than I was, but I never thought about it in terms of class. And being thrust into a world where class is just so pronounced because you need social capital to go anywhere and do well for yourself. To address some of these issues, Courtney set up Working Class Wonks, a network for working class people in think tanks and research institutes. I would like for it to be thought about and for the conversation to shift to be more about the people who have the privilege, thinking about how that has impacted them and how that has enabled them to get to where they are, rather than us having to have conversations where working class people have to kind of share everything, put it all out on the table and talk about how hard it's been for them, because I think that's really valid and we should really be shedding a light on that. The bigger problem is the, the structures of privilege that have, have enabled everyone else to get where they are. And unless those people reflect on, on that and look at it as a kind of a systemic problem, then I think we're quite limited in how far we're going to get. Listening to Courtney made me think of something else I'd noticed while making this series. There are many things that come with privilege. It could be access to financial support, parental connections, the kind of cultural capital that means you know what a think tank is. 
Professor Diane Ray is a Cambridge academic researcher and higher education teacher. She comes from a working class background and grew up on a large council estate. Her book, Miseducation, explores the relationship between class and education. She's been examining a number of PhDs, looking into some of the qualities exhibited by people who have been through the elite private school system. Along with the quality of arrogance, which they all seem to have, what they also have is ease. Ease in multiple social situations. The belief that they can go into any sort of social event or context and be comfortable in it, feel confident about who they are and what they say. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never had that ease. <laughs> I think that you're constantly having to work in social context. You can never really relax and just expect it to be all fine because you never know that it's going to be fine. <laughs> it's difficult to even comprehend someone who might have that ease. I don't know if I've ever been at ease when it comes to work, maybe even life. We've heard a couple of stories from people that made it to university, despite their backgrounds, but my experience has been a little bit different. Throughout my teenage years, my mum struggled with her mental health. The trauma me and my brother felt during that time really impacted our school life and beyond. That sense of safety you would hope every child would have and carry into adulthood, it was missing in my life. But my way of coping came through music, and a couple of supportive teachers nurtured this passion in me. One of the biggest turning points was thanks to my music teacher, Kevin Hayter. We stayed in touch after I left school, and he must have seen something in me and my brother, but the most important thing he did was trust us. He let me and my twin brother Simon borrow his very expensive music equipment, and suggested we apply for a Prince's Trust grant to buy some of our own. He even helped us write the application, and we got the grant. It enabled us to buy a sampler, an audio effects unit, a cheap synthesizer, and a keyboard. It was all really basic, but it was enough for us to start making music, and we signed our first record contract a year later. I remember the postman knocking at the door with a vinyl test pressing of our first record, the smell of it coming out as I prized the cardboard envelope open. I remember carefully dropping the needle on the groove, waiting for the music to start. It all felt very unreal. But Simon and I were at odds with the worlds we were coming into contact with. Despite some success, I think we were both racked with anxiety and self-doubt, and we still are sometimes. Imposter syndrome is real. Despite all of that, I've somehow managed to make it to my 40s and always had work connected to creative stuff. And for some of us, that hard-won success has taken longer to get to and has come later in life. All the production, sound design, and some of the music on this podcast series is being done by my twin brother Simon, who, aged 49, is starting to find some ease in the work he's doing, not only as a producer of programmes like these, but as a sound artist, another world rather lacking in its class diversity. I sat down to chat with one of my oldest school friends, Grant, who enjoyed school when he was young, but wasn't given the support he needed, or recognition, 
of the dyslexia that was holding him back. He left school not really knowing what to do next. He told me he considered becoming a chef and liked the idea of working in radio, but he went to the careers officer. And she said, you won't amount to anything. Just become a shelf stacker, go and get a job in the shop. And that kind of did stick with me, it always has. Despite being given no encouragement to achieve and no support for his dyslexia, Grant did far better than I did in my GCSEs. I got three C's, two D's and an E, and I passed all three Pittman's typing exams. <laughs> because I wanted to do music, and I wasn't allowed to do music, so the only thing that was open there was typing. Grant's older sister was at Sixth Form College, and he decided to go to an open day there, which led to him applying for a media and communications course, despite not having the required qualifications. They accepted him, but some of the challenges he had at secondary school came back to haunt him. I was at least half a year behind everybody else in my studies. You know, They were doing all this critical you know, analysis of things or whatever, and I couldn't do it because it had like an English module to it, an English almost literature module. I had no clue how to do that, which was the dyslexia stuff again, but also I hadn't been taught how to do that. I was told by one guy, he was one of the main tutors of the course, if you can't do it, go away, what's this crap? And he threw my stuff across the room. So I just did, I just left and got, then just went to work, 18, you know, go and work in Waitrose. A job in Waitrose is a good, honest job, nothing wrong with it, but it feels from Grant's story that his other dreams have been quashed far too soon, more choices taken away from him. I was wondering what was next, you know, I was... I was worried about what was next and he kind of had that oh it's obviously inevitable this is what happens and I'm just fulfilling that and it did piss me off a bit I guess I felt I wasn't showing them they were right at school and not really seeing how it was a self-fulfilling prophecy I guess I didn't think I could do anything else you're not given that mindset to think you can do that like many people in this episode Grant met someone who changed an old mindset and his life by encouraging him to explore higher education. No one told me that I could go to the Open University. I I did access course and I only did part of a certificate of higher education. I didn't do the whole certificate, but that gave me enough credits to approach a university and then say to them, look, I've got these credits. This is what I can do. This is what I want to do. How can we do this? And nobody tells you you can do that. And that's what I really want to impart with people. You don't have to make that decision either then, at eight, you know, 17, 18. It's okay to take a bit of a break. But also you think, you know, okay, I'm, I'm dyslexic. I, I don't think like everybody else does. But that's okay. I think differently. And I do things differently, but I think differently. And that's why I was getting the grades I, I was getting, because I was approaching things from a different angle. But you don't get told that. That's the main thing. And, you know, why you can get disenfranchised with education and with school at that early age, because you don't think the same, but you're not told that that's okay, or how you can facilitate your learning or your career by doing it in a different way. I'm so proud of what Grant achieved by being supported to think and learn differently, but it could have happened sooner if things had been different. It does give me a little bit of hope, though, for what else could be achieved by so many others in our community. I ended up with a first. I I ended up with a a degree in anthropology. 
I can put BA after my name. I'm a Bachelor of Arts with a first class degree in anthropology from the University of Sussex. I graduated in 2019. I was very, very lucky to do it then because I was part of that last graduation where we could attend and hug Sanjeev Bhaskar and shake his hand and get him to do the White Hawk sign. And I felt very lucky. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. So it is possible to break through the class ceiling for a lucky few. But what happens to those that somehow manage to widen the path of opportunity? Could there be another ceiling in the way? The Social Mobility Foundation released research in 2022 that showed that, even with a degree, working-class professionals are paid less than their middle-class peers. Here's Diane Ray again. Even those working-class young people who achieve miracles, the impossible, and get to one of the elite universities and then get a good degree, end up having to deal with a large class pay gap which means despite doing just as well as their middle-class peers, they end up earning sort of eight to 10,000 a year less. And that's even more if you're a young working-class woman. Language, accents, postcodes, what you wear, all these things send out signals to some people in power. They might let you in the door, but you'll never really be one of them. I'd highly recommend checking out the Department of Opportunities research into this in 2022. They also made a shocking short film called Stay Down, with the subtitle, Your Birth Will Be Your Downfall. So much of what we've heard in this programme is about university. Why, when other countries like Finland see vocational studies as equal, do we focus so much attention and see university as the gold standard of options after school. Diane Ray. This is to do with class bigotry and prejudice as well. We've always seen any type of vocational education in England as inferior. And I think that's very much to do with its association with the working classes. Other countries are much better at having a parity between the vocational and the academic than we are. And I've been arguing for quite some time that we need to have a vocational education right from primary onwards that's engaging, but also high status and well-resourced. And I think the only way to do that is to, to make the middle classes do it as well as the working classes. But what about the government's flagship apprenticeship scheme? There's a lot of talk about apprenticeships, but when you look at what those apprenticeships are like, how well they're funded, how well thought through they are, then they're dismal, really. They're not anything like adequate to the needs of young people coming out of school. So we really need to have a good, vibrant, well thought through apprenticeship programme. I always see my experience after school as an apprenticeship programme, but the difference was I kind of made it up myself, picking and choosing the things I wanted to learn. I was only able to do this because I was able to live on £35 a week and the job centre left me alone in a way they would never do now. But that experience created a lifelong interest in learning, teaching myself how to do stuff, learning from others, learning by doing, with a lot of acting a sieve to hide the imposter syndrome. I really feel so lucky 
that I found a way to make things work. I had 10 days work experience in October when I was, I was 15 years old. And from them 10 days, I had a friend who was a tiler, dad's friend, and he took me to work. Then I started working with a firm who he was working for called Susquehanna Floor Tiling. And they gave me an apprenticeship. And then they put me on the roll in college and then obviously left them at 21 and, and, and set out on my own life. Again, a little bit of luck and someone in the system who actually did care. No, a friend. I look at myself now and got my own painting business now. And could I be earning more in an office and doing these, these jobs that we were supposed to try and get? I don't think so. I think I'm earning a lot more money than a lot of these people that have got the knowledge for a lot, a lot of things. Do you know what I mean? And what about Carly's other brother, Asa? When I was in the rehab, I achieved a couple of things. I was working in the detox after I'd, I'd finished rehab and I was taking people's details to get them into rehab. And then I'd done an MVQ to help younger people. And I passed that. So in a few years time, that's what I want to get back into because I, I really enjoyed it. But uh, I need to give myself a few years to, to get, stay clean and keep going first because that's what I'd done last time. I, I threw myself into all these things and then I lost track of what I was doing and track of my own stuff. So this time I need to take it slowly. So, but I've got all the qualifications. I know where else to go and to get back into it. So that's what I'm going to do. By the time people like me leave school, it's going to take a lot of hard work to repair the damage already done. Some people from my background could benefit from improved skills training, but that's not going to fix more than a decade of lack of support, not fitting in, low aspirations from the system, a lack of funding in schools in disadvantaged areas, and teachers struggling. What's needed is a complete rethink about how people from different backgrounds are seen and treated by society. We started this episode talking about luck, the postcode lottery, but it's not really about luck. It's about choices our government makes and that we make locally here as a city. In the next episode, we'll be looking at that because let's remind ourselves of what's at the heart of all of this. Well, I think the education system is the, the biggest single driver of creating the sort of society that we want to see. Do we want to see a fair and more equal society where everybody has opportunities? In the next episode, I want to offer a potential way forward for schools in Brighton and Hove, and maybe further afield. We'll be delving into how the idea of choice, and the mechanisms around that, catchment areas and admissions processes, have a massive impact on who has the most advantage in our education system, and who loses out. If you live in nice middle class areas, you get two choices to send your kids to, and if you don't, you don't. It's so stark. To Spain or the city. This is a thing we can all, as a city, get behind to equal out advantage and disadvantage. It's not an idea just for parents, it's an idea for everyone, because the education of the people in our city impacts all of us. Core episodes will be released every other week, and on the weeks in between, I'll be getting together with Carly Goldsmith to talk about some of the things that came up in the most recent episode. So make sure you're subscribed on your podcast app to access that. And if you're about to hit that subscribe button, please consider leaving us a rating and review. It really helps spread the word. 
Class Divide was written and produced by me, Curtis James. The executive producer is Eve Streeter. Location recording, sound design, post-production and mixing is by Simon James. With editorial support by Carly Goldsmith. Music in the series was kindly donated by Olivia Aleri, Marja Newt, Room, Neil Hale, Salvatore Macatanti, Polly Paws, Minor Pieces, Clarice Jensen, Shida Shahibi, Max de Wardner, Simon James, Rutger Hodemakers, Toy Drum, Trams, Benjamin Harrison, and the official body. The series was funded by necessity. And if you'd like to support the Class Divide campaign, follow at Divide Class on Twitter and Instagram, or visit the website classdivide.co.uk. I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's taken part. This series couldn't have happened without many people putting their trust in me to tell these important stories. There are also people who shared their stories with me and whose voices haven't ended up in the series. Many of the things those people share with me are definitely here as ideas and inspiration. I also need to thank the Crew Club, Daniel Nathan, Alex at Fat Cat Records, Colin at Castles in Space and Jimmy Berlianto for their help and support. Please help spread the word by subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a rating and review. Until next time, I'll see you next week.